90.7 FM in KSQT, 89.7 in Prunedale. And I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective, where we strive to present all kinds of poetry by all kinds of people. And today, if you hear a little bit like jingle bells in the background, we are recording the day before Christmas, but actually that's my dog's collar. Oh, I th- so he's he's like a dog of many movies. His name is Astas, so that's the thin man, but he's also like the dog in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. That little <laughs> jingle bell. She's tearing apart like some something there. Um, it's a cute sound. Um, anyway, so this is Roxy Power with me today, and she's got a brand new book called The Songs That Objects Would Sing. Roxy Power's first book of poetry, this one, The Songs That Objects Would Sing, came out in September. Mm-hmm. Cecil Giscombe's blurb reads the first line of Roxy Power's incredible burst of poems lays down the law with one hand and sets things in motion with another that is she writes as if to remark on the coming noise made by fire, death love, the many motions of this music, of these songs that objects would sing will brush the reader with a difficult and worthy joy Wow, Roxy, a difficult and worthy joy. That's what we all want, right? Is yeah. our joy to be difficult? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. See, I, I was very honored to get um, Cecil to say such words. How'd you make me. him do that? Make him. That's really good. Um, I think um, after being friends with one another for thirty some odd years, because I went to the MFA program at Cornell University where he was the editor of Epic Literary Magazine and he was my boss. Um, he made me do so many things. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, he, he's just very kind. And he, he read the book carefully in his busy schedule. So I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful. Well, anyway, you're working on a second collection. I didn't know that to be published by Carbonation Press in 2024. Hmm. Roxy founded and edits the trans-genre anthology series Viz InterArts from the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she has been a teacher and labor activist for 25 years. Power has performed original scripts of live film narration, known as Neo Benchy, around the country, including the Tennessee Williams Festival and the New Orleans Poetry Festival. She won AWP Inter Award, has published widely in journals, holds an MFA in poetry from Cornell, and lives with her family in Felton. So what is it about transgenre you love so much? And why don't you tell us what you how you perceive trans or define transgenre? Wow. Good question to open with. Um I guess because my family members are visual artists, most of them are painters, or my um, oldest sister was a stained glass artist, and my mother was a pianist. Um, There was a lot of music, and there was a lot of visual art in my family, and I didn't really come out naturally being able to just reproduce, um, especially the the visual art, except in abstract forms. Um, And so 
uh, being a bit of an egghead and a storyteller, I reverted to language. But the the family, the familial influence of different art forms, I think, bled through. I found myself, especially in graduate school, always being that person who brought the drums or brought, you know, um, the slideshow of the visual art to accompany my, my, my poems, even though I was in very much a purist department where people who tried to sneak across the aisle to a workshop, say, in fiction, were banned from doing so. And I didn't really understand why, for example, poetry, MFA was not located in an art studio as mm-hmm. opposed to literature because the literature folks tended to... Um, uh, denigrate us in many ways, even though their entire careers were built upon the production of people who were writing literature. So it was a strange location. I, I feel more an affinity with art. And so trans means across. It also means, you know, it can mean above or meta, but I was thinking about working across art forms. And when I got to Santa Cruz, having worked across art forms for many years, but when I finally moved here in 98, the first class I taught was critical approaches to creative writing. And instead of it being what it sounds like it would be, it ended up being a course about apparently my obsession, which is art that interfaces with different forms. And then when I was asked to re-jumpstart Corey West by Karen Yamashita of the literature program um, and applied for some money to do that, George Hitchcock, who um, controlled that fund, said, we will not resurrect anything that's died. Come up with something new. And I said, good, because I really want to do this um, anthology viz and viz in english means ie or that is and oh, yeah. so my first introduction mm-hmm. to viz was the the was poetry ie painting so i see them in some ways not as interchangeable but not utterly separate mm-hmm. i could say more about that if you want i teach trans genre forms up at ucsc as well but i think i think that my muse is basically other art forms hmm. and so when i look at my sister sky powers paintings for example mm-hmm. i want to write to them Mm-hmm. Or in response to them. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a communication, a connection. I think that that's not uncommon for poets to. Well, for example, Dorian Locks was really influenced by the fact that her mother was a pianist. Yeah, and on the cover of this book is this white piano that my sister Sky Power painted, and it looks a little bit ghostly to me. It's almost like that white grand piano that that John Lennon played in Imagination, but then it also appeared in a long poem um, by C.D. Wright that I discovered after this book was published. Um, And and the white piano appears a lot in her long poem, Deep Step Come Shining. And so I feel like there's a lot more for me to respond to (laughs) with Uh this particular object, Mm -hmm. um, the piano, because my mom played it, and it's just one of the many objects that appear in the book. Yeah, that sing. One of the many objects? Okay. That was inspired by my mom's death, and that's Mm -hmm. the the titular poem is, um, you know, written after she passed on. Because you talked about your ghost piano, Mm -hmm. which I love. I love that idea of a ghost piano. I thought we would jump to the titular poem. Don't we feel naughty when we say that word? Um, There's something about that word. What, titular? Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's move on. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. There's something. Wasn't there another word, eponymous or something, that you can use instead if you're prude? Eponymous, yes. Eponymous, which sounds like... Harumph. A hippopotamus. Okay. All right, so we're going to read The Songs That Objects Sing, and this is from your book, The Songs That Objects Would Sing. We were there together in a placement against all odds. What do we really know about starting from scratch 
in a bed, in a belly, in a bardo. No I there yet, but reaching. So I had you for a lifetime and now cannot imagine what next. Subscribe to a theory about how we'll meet again? Tired of all who pretend to know. I feel you in the glint of objects sometimes. That's all I know. That shimmer down the length of spiderweb, that omniscience in the chandelier unseen till now but for a flickering instant, something. When I held you as you lay dying, when you died, when I held you in my arms, I had a glimpse of the warrior we are, buried beneath the dream of permanence. Oh, Mom, those fingers curved over my hand. I can feel your skin too tight over bones like leather gloves left out to dry after a rainstorm. The piano you thumped until it turned into story. Then the fingers dried up from disuse. And yet to see them, pink half-moon fingernails, artists' hands lying over my own, is to sense beginnings. The shame of beauty, it doesn't know it will not last forever. Its eyes grow sad as it sees this, then ripen underground into jewel-colored yams. To say to my young daughter, watch or listen if you want to know what life is, is to say life is anxiety. Dog leaping toward bird sound? Bird leaping from dog sound? Who sits absorbed inside sounds centerless, edgeless, surround? Neurosis of Stellar's J, its matrix shriek going out in all directions from a single point. No asterisk of sound, no apperception here. Who are the inward-focused here, the cochineal among such racket-makers, dipping inside to bear witness to one's own wells? How to re-enter the conversation with objects that bear your subtle signature, your cinematic fictions I sew from scratch in this song-strafed foliate mosh pit? When I touch the objects that bring you to mind, touch upon them, when I touch your dust, your crumbs, when I... Like an archaeology of closed eyelids, candles once lit and frozen, the angel's lips open in a song she is about to, but has never and never will sing. The mute acceptance of objects to receive our fragment song, a circle free of dust once we lift and by lifting enter the story, replacing the clean halo with a mess of fictions that startle us back to grace. Wrapped, we listen to what never was and will be again. And by, by the way, that was just an excerpt from a long poem. That was Roxy Power reading the songs that objects would sing from the book of the same name. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. So this is really a poem about longing and remembering and how the essence of people live in objects that Mm. they leave behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean... Being a good postmodernist, I'm, I've taught to um, strain against the idea of essences, but I do feel them. I feel no. Wait a minute. Why can't a postmodernist? Be oh, you know, like we're, we're we were taught to be anti-essentialist in the '80s. That, 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 that there's no such thing as the essence of a woman, like Aristotle said. You so know, so it's just, you just focus on the images. The you focus, is. yeah. But I do feel that there is a kind of essence. I've, I feel a presence well, inside the objects. Aren't you a Buddhist? Aren't you a Buddhist? Oh well, yeah. I'm, I'm very drawn to the idea in the beginning of Toni Morrison's Beloved that if you step into that house, you will relive the history. Mm. So being a kind of nostalgic person anyway, I feel that if I array some objects of my mother's around me, that's the closest I'm going to get, including 
having her dust in my well, urn isn't to have that, her be there. You isn't know? that human? I mean, I mean, we when we, you know, I go down to Capitola and walk around, and every little shop is full of things for people to buy, right. so they can remember being in Capitola, and so that they can capture that experience of being on vacation. I mean, people. They collect mementos, you know, we want heirlooms, we want things handed down to us. We, mm-hmm. we want stuff. We just want stuff. And isn't that because we invest them with some essence or power? And song, which is to say we want them to tell our stories. And so it is a form of projection and maybe healing because we're using um, objects that resonate with memory scapes from our childhood. Um fictional or otherwise, as Joan Didion might say, you know, the, the truth is stranger than fiction, that that we can reinvent ourselves through the stories that we project on them. Well, don't all objects have a vibration? Doesn't mm. everything have a vibration on yes, some level? Yes, well said. I, I think so. I think so. And um, so I think that um, this period of waiting to come into a place where I could speak to the ineffable loss of my mom um, made it so that I had to interact with the things in my environment. One of those, some of those things were the redwoods outside of my deck. So I really, you know, I, I corresponded with the the brook, the sounds, um, the, the, the trees, and also objects from the past. So I was ta- in a sense, I was trying to be in the present with my feelings, but I was as some people have told me, um, being kind of past-centric and trying to use my environment like the brook that I refer to a lot in this poem as a way to move into the future with these memories. So this is how you grappled with the death of your mother. Yeah. Which is like, that is the purpose of poetry. It's elegy and grappling with the mysteries. I mean, death is the biggest mystery of all. I feel like, or one of them. Right. And so the bardo that comes up in this poem and others, I have a poem called The Bardo of War. The bardo is a Tibetan Buddhist concept. Um, You know, the fourth line where I say, um, what do we really know about starting from scratch? Mm -hmm. In a bed, in a belly, in a bardo. The bardo is supposedly those 49 days, uh, period, period after you die, where your essence, if you would, will is trying to find a new form. Mm. kind of wandering almost ghost-like so I feel like there's a lot of memory ghosts mm. and there's even a poem in the in my collection called ghost scratchings after my sister died and I was trying to get at this um ob- through an object a candle because we would always light them together on New Year's Eve and um have rituals together I would I, I use that you know image of the candle to get back to her but also the scratchings kind of felt almost painterly to me because my favorite painter is is Willem de Kooning and his his process would be to paint and then um cover it with gesso and then scratch through the gesso to see the under story as it were the under the under the let let the layers from the past sneak through into the present that's neat that's yeah that's a really neat metaphor I really love this line I feel you in the glint of objects sometimes. That's all I know. Yeah. I mean, I love that line. I'm like, it's like, wow, that's a poem right there. I feel you in the glint of objects sometimes. That's all I know. Do you ever feel that with people who have passed on in your life? Do you feel them sometimes? Or is it just me? Sometimes I I wonder if oh it's... Oh, my God. You know, I, I see my f- old friend Susie everywhere all the time. Mm. I mean, I really, really get that with... 
certain people, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And one of my dogs, I get that. Uh, they just, wow, they, it seems like if I become alert, I see them everywhere. And I love the some of the these details here. I feel you in the glint of objects sometimes. That's all I know. That shimmer down the length of a spider web. The omniscience in the chandelier. I love the omniscience in the chandelier. There is something like really smart about a chandelier. <laughs> I mean, it's almost embarrassing to admit what I feel sometimes. It's very subjective, but I'm sure that in certain um, time periods, you could probably get a diagnosis for it or something like, <laughs> like, um, like I, I will feel like, ooh, mom, is that you? And then if I bring my skeptical mind to it, she disappears. And I feel this remorse of how much effort it took. And I don't even know, I'm pretty skeptical. I don't know if there are things like ghosts or people from the other side. Um, But I feel it sometimes. And that's literally all I know. And I'm frustrated with all the theories about what people pretend to know, like reincarnation. I mean, yes, I'm a Buddhist, but I don't know. Right? No, we don't know. Um, But I think that as poets and as people, I think everyone on some level has some sense of some other world that we want to enter Mm -hmm. and understand. And I think that we wouldn't be artists. Mm -mm. There wouldn't be Netflix. I mean, what do we yes. want, what do we want to do at night? We like go to our Netflix page and there's all these little portals, you know, here's this portal, there's that portal. It's like, oh, I'm gonna go to Outlander. I'm gonna go back to seventeen hundred now. You know, I think oh, that that's interesting. I think Dion. that everyone wants to enter another world and I think the job of the poet is to manifest it in a very abstract way. It's it's almost like alchemy. We use the right combination of words, and then something is sparked into being. And something is right. Something, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, let me just, before yeah. we move on, let me just look at a couple more lines that I really like. Um, the shame of beauty. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know, will not last forever. I wrote next to that, that's for sure. The one thing beauty doesn't know is that it's not omnipotent. It just feels so powerful at the time. So I love that line. But the final line is like a Cohen. It's sort of Dickinson-like. Wrapped, we listen to what never was and will be again. You just kind of have to like Mm. sit. That's one of those kinds, that's kind of language that's like, Okay, you're never going to quite figure that one out. You just have to, like, let it vibrate, like objects vibrate. (laughs) Right. We listen to what never was and will be again. That's as we listen to the song in the objects, we kind of bend time and, like, get into that vibration of the essence of the person that never goes away bending time that's interesting because there's some there's a lot of poems in here that kind of deal with that notion of entering into the future do you Um, have another poem here you want to read well i do want to say really quickly about that that couplet at the end Mm -hmm. um because of this the fact that this is an excerpt i did bring up something that i bring up a lot which is a quote from the heart sutra in buddhism which is Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Speaking of koans, really hard to understand that, but you need form to understand emptiness. You need the presence of an object to understand what's missing. So, um, so we listen like- to what never was. Is like we don't. We think we understand. We don't exist in the way that we think we do, according to Buddhists. 
that we are empty of an essential, an essence, an essential being, like a soul, that our thoughts are constantly moving, and we are that movement in a way, and that we try to capture ourselves and hold on to ourselves, and the essence of suffering is that holding on to an idea of ourselves. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone else, because I want to hold on to this essence of my mom or to people that I love so much. But I resurrect them into things that will pass through the matrix of my mind recreating them. And I'm aware of that. So she never existed in the way that I thought she did. We listened to what never was. That's what okay, that means. So then how do you capture the essence of something that is lost just by delving into the essence of what you are now? I think in some ways, it has to do with working in form, speaking of media, mm-hmm. um, that um, that your mind can dwell on like a painting. Oh. Um, so so music is 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 about movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Poems, in a way, are a crisscross between those two things because the words are moving in a narrative fashion from beginning to end across the page, and yet there is a page to contain that little, you know, lineup of words, right? But a painting can still the mind into something that has at least the feeling of an essence mm-hmm. of something that lasts eternally it's visual beauty and so, visual beauty kind of forces you into a sense of pure awareness yeah it slows down my mind a little mm-hmm. bit and i need that like i have names for all the sections of my book and one of them then the second section is called unpaint a landscape and it's about the fire poems that really um well let's read a fire poem yeah let's uh, what about the aftermath of future because we were talking about bending time the the aftermath of future if we can find it i mean the aftermath how can we find the aftermath of future i I know it's another one of those koans okay good for you you found it before me future on page seven okay um so this is after the czu lightning complex fire of 2020 and i wrote a series of mini poems that appear in the book the first one is called zigzag where i'm driving I find out from my daughter who called me while I'm in Wyoming, and she said, "You know, um, our the how the forest is on flame is in flames, and we mm-hmm. have to leave. And can you come home, Mama?" And so I start driving home, and um, I get all the way to Elko, Nevada, and she says, "Turn around. There's no reason to come back. It's going to be a long, smoky burn." And so I start this kind of epic journey across the Rocky Mountain West, where I was brought up. And then when I return and I start contending with what it meant to my friends who actually lost homes, like up in Bonnie Dune, mm-hmm. um, and that fall of trying to prepare for what could happen again. This poem is about thinking into the future, mm-hmm. because the aftermath of, we already know what's going to happen in the future in some ways, there will be yeah. more fires. Well, this is the reality of um, living in California. Why don't you go ahead, let's hear it. Okay. The aftermath of future. The aftermath of fire bends time. The physics of fear disturbs the mind. And yet, if I give in to this October afternoon's perfect air quality after last week's brittle skies, then do I relinquish readiness and return to remorse at things becoming different from what they are? Uphill, the man who never stops building seems to be screwing brads into steel, everyone readying themselves for the next stage. Of what? Why nest in further between these wires interlaced with crackling oaks? One just toppled into a week of blackout reminding us that power is evanescent, a privilege we should no longer build around. Electricity, uncontained in lightning, connects us. 
I may be here now with the plum tree brushing our roof, but putting calls to tree trimmers now is just one fold in the snakeskin of time. Three embers blown that way could spell an afternoon very different from the one where I sit at a table rather than behind my wheel. Next to me, Frankenstein. I spend the fall paging through Victor's trauma, electrifying a life he couldn't care for. My students and I explore galvanic concepts of life, sparks you can't control once unleashed. Just last night, I felt a substream of a life beneath this one that continues like a parallel river below the one where I watch my family laughing behind the window. In that river, our love continues from its first spark, and we live out some version of its unfolding, an alternate reality, as if. As I drove the 5,000 miles of evacuation, friends spoke of quantum physics, the past, present, and future happening at once. I try not to live in the past, though I pay homage with scatterings of ash into rivers across our childhood stories. The same river flows into knowable future happening already, these friends say. I wouldn't know, but probability scars the mountainsides, a zagging, illegible script. That was Roxy Power reading The Aftermath of Future from her book, The Song That Objects Would Sing. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM and KSQT Prunedale. Here at the Hive, we not only do interviews with local poets like Roxy and poets from all over the country, we also have events approximately every other month at Bookshop Santa Cruz, usually, Go to our events page at hivepoetry.org to see what we've got coming up. We've got some really good readers coming soon to the bookshop, and we all love to go to the bookshop, too, and buy books. So, Roxy, how to grapple with this strange, uncertain reality of living in the future? (laughs) Oh, I know. Well, I think it's because we have not really evolved our brains to be future focused that we're in the the mess that we are right now with climate change. And I mean, this is a book that is pretty obsessed with those series of eco poems and a series of fire poems that even though I try not to be preachy, I think that I was very much influenced by Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, um, The Ministry for the Future that I taught my students and that you know, to have a UN agency that is dedicated to the future where you might not be living, but you're trying to be altruistically disposed to helping people and species and the world in a place where you're not, is not something that we have evolved to do. And so I am trying in little ways to retrain my brain to think in those ways. Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, part of the reason why it's so hard is because you're making decisions based on your best guess about what's going to happen given millions and millions of variables. Yeah. It's very difficult. Well, I think that we know um, that, for example, where I live in Felton, that um, the, like, like this poem says, the crackling oaks interlaced with the wires will probably cause fire again. And so it costs PG&E a lot of money to bury the wires like they do in Mm. Europe. There's no immediate payoff for them 
but in the future there will be well it's, it's the nature of capitalism um that we uh that you need in some ways to pay your investors your pg&e investors as much money as possible and it would cost it would it would you wouldn't be able to pay them off that much if you were investing money in infrastructure now this poem doesn't really deal with that but the aftermath of future assuming that you know the weirdness of all my friends during this evacuation the weirdness of so many of my friends in Colorado in particular saying I've been reading about quantum physics and the past present and future all happening at once and I thought what the hell does that mean because um and why is everybody talking about it is there some book that's just been published that everybody <laughs> is reading or something but it made me realize um okay well let's bring a little bit of future into my obsession with um the past you know um, my nostalgia for people who have passed on. So um, if the future is already hap happening, I don't know, if time is not as linear as we think it is, can I enter into that stream? And sometimes this gets woo-woo again, I guess, like seeing, um, you know, feeling people in objects. But maybe other people feel this on the cusp of dreams at night. You kind of enter into a place that is a different, no um, where you're evoking a different notion of time. It's not chronos, it's eon. It seems like we have to get a different outlook or a different view of how we grapple with what we're doing on the planet. We, we do need sort of a quantum different, quant, a quantum leap in our thinking about yeah. how to prepare for the future. And it's really a form of giving, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's a form of kindness to people we don't even know, exactly. but to ourselves too, since the change is happening so fast. Well, it would be like a, f a form of kindness for Victor who created, um, you know, the creature, Victor Frankenstein, who created the creature, and he knew that he's going to piece him together from body parts that would make him very ugly, and... And lo and behold, he, he was created and he was ugly and Victor freaked out and he didn't want to take care of him. So it's like, you know, bad parenting, like you're not beautiful enough, I'm not going to take care of you. So we have to take care of, no matter how ugly it looks at this point, you mm -hmm. know, the future that we are, we were responsible for creating at this time, you know. I just so want to say really quickly, yeah. uh, since we're half an hour in, that it is KSQD Santa Cruz 9.7 FM, and it's KSQT 89.7 Prunedale is down the road as the High Poetry Collective. Um, I love how this ends, because it really ends with the difficulty of taking what's happening in the present and past, and knowing what to do next for the future i wouldn't know but probability scars the mountainsides a zagging illegible script i think that is that's postmodernist isn't it ending on yeah. an image like that you really end on a an image that encapsulates the difficulty of how to move forward well, zigzagging does imply moving forward and then backward and forward and backward. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of how I zigzagged across the West. I was in Wyoming. I went to Nevada heading home and then I zigzagged back to Utah and Colorado. In order to go forward, you have to go backwards. But that's how fire also moves is it mm. leaps from tree to tree and there's no discernible linear movement of it. And so you almost have to think like fire and get a step ahead of it and, you know, harden your harden your, your, your grounds and bury your wires and so forth, but also have a mind that is capable of living both in the past and the future, which, 
is anxiety producing, frankly. I just interviewed Brenda Hillman recently, and she was talking a lot about time in her books and how to live in the present. Um, but if you're someone who is disposed to helping people like a mom or an activist, you have to think about the future. You have to think about, you know, sending your daughter to college. You have to think about your student's future, how to prepare them to be resilient and so forth. So it's hard to just live in the present. It is. I mean, but you do have to, you have to, you have to make plans. You just don't have to add a whole bunch of thinking on it that's related to anxiety. Right. I know that one's hard. It's so that's, hard. That's hard. So, okay. So what do you want to read next? Well, I was thinking that we were going to start um, initially with some of the earlier poems in the first part of the book that deal with location. Okay. Um, and the first one is called Pump Jacks, and maybe we could... What's know, a pump jack? Well, it's like... It's a mythical object from my childhood in Texas, um, but you know, if you, it's a horrible thing actually uh, that pumps oil up. Oh, from, it looks like looks a like teeter totter. Or it looks like a chicken pecking the ground. Yeah, yeah, it's like an evil chicken pe- pecking the ground. It's black, yeah, like a and it moves up and down. Yes, Frankenstein chicken. Exactly. We called them up and downs. Um, mm-hmm. We tried to make them very um, cutesy when I was little, but they were actually just you know pulling up oil from the ground, and so. There's a series of poems because I was born in Texas and I was brought up in Wyoming and there's some laments about oil. Okay. Um, Pump jacks. On a long, dank train through Texas, she told the curious her name was Steve. Long brown curls stuffed into a woolen driver's cap. Her grandmother warned her she'd go bald someday, grounded her to her seat and said, little girls are never named Steve. Outside, pump jacks swayed like anemone, and she dreamed of going home, in a conflux of thrust and gravity, in a perfect rhythm upon their fulcrums, they seemed to be drawing from a hidden river. Sluiced to the train, they pumped it south, long, lonely whistle and the bittersweet, oil-slick night, the cotton just poking through, stark black arms rocking up and down, up and down. They made strange the sudden sighting on crests of cottonwoods. Eerie displacement into yellow smell, stars burning and breathing the sulfurous night, the earth's arteries thrumming in the long shuddered ride. The smell was sweet, and with the oil came the expectation of that strange arrival. Midnight, streets wet, the lights of the Piggly Wiggly would glow soft, and the refinery condense the night scent. Lilac, sulfur, and peaches. The Fina dinosaur turned, burned, sorry, in the sky, spinning on an axis above her. Mm. Um, that was Pump Jacks. Roxy, yeah. uh, Roxy Power reading from her new book, The Song That Objects Would Sing. This is Dan O'Reilly on the Hive Poetry Collective. Um, you know, this is an early poem, so we don't have to talk that much about it, but I think it kind of sets some ideas about my obsession with um, landscapes that I kind of turn into spaces of, you know, the imagination, but also time. Um, I performed this song with a San Francisco band I once worked with called Mobius Operandi and collaged it with a Kenneth Koch poem called One Train May Hide Another Train. And um, so we, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with trains like a lot of people are. Do you know that Tony Hoagland about trains? No. Okay, um, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, but everything's connected. It's like um, the 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 guiding idea that um, that well, you know, sluice is a it's like a gate that controls the flow of water. Um, Everything's connected, right? So the 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 oil is pumping, you know, I guess 
the train. I don't know. Trains are probably not run by oil on oil, but maybe they are now. Um, but it's also connected to memory, right? This mythical pump jacks um, that were cool to, to children are actually, you know, it's like a character from my childhood in Texas um, pumping well, memories. Especially their name is Jack. You know, yeah. It's almost got like a human name. I love some of these rhymes, or not rhymes, but just um, beautiful diction. Outside, Pump Jack swayed like an enemy, and she dreamed of going home. I like an enemy dreamed home. In a conflux of thrust and gravity, in a perfect rhythm upon their fulcrums. And then this, I love this line. They seem to be drawn from a hidden river. Mm. I just really like that line. It's sort of like what poetry does. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like the essence, with that essence we talk about. The hidden river where everything that connects everything. Yeah. Um, long, lonely whistle and the bittersweet, oil-slick night. A bittersweet, oil-slick night. That's just a really, that's some nice um, wordsmith in there, Roxy. <laughs> the cotton just uh, poking through. I guess there's some, some consonants there, yeah. And the dreamlike aspect of this dark black arms rocking up and down up and down that's dreamlike it's sort of hypnotic it's almost like waves they make they made strange the sudden sighting on crests of cottonwoods eerie displacement into yellow smell that's like synesthesia you know that that's the connection there of the color with the smell stars burning and breathing stars burning and breathing the sulfurous night the earth's arteries thrumming in the long shuddered ride. Ah, it's just very. It's like it's like the the night train, you know, the dream train. Oh yeah, I love that dream train. The more that I resist going to sleep, the more I wonder why. Because it's the best thing, really, dreaming. And you know, this this is a train taking you through a long uh, state, you know, Texas, and. Uh, in a state of mind, Texas, and then and then the next one we we're going to talk about going through Wyoming, implying a trip of, to Wyoming, is really about a car drive. Um, Which when one you're is old. that? Which so it starts with "All that matters is a ghost." Okay. And it's um, and uh, and it really has to do with um, returning to the place that I grew up, Wyoming, <clears throat> to a, a childhood reunion, and and finding that. Um, Wyoming is kind of this uh, mythical presence um, to me, and it has become so, uh, you know, there's, I have a lot of differences in pol politically speaking with my friends, and so when I go back to reunions, it, that's complicated, but I love them so much, and I love the landscape, the empty landscape. I live in a very busy state, yeah. right? There's so many people here. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm driving through pure emptiness it's almost a, a very rare moment to be alone with my own thoughts and to remember um i guess in a way to suture onto the landscape you know stories from my childhood but also mm -hmm. to imagine what else it's it's a space that brings writing to me basically driving through wyoming um so let's hear it yeah okay implying a trip to wyoming all that matters is a ghost or the traces of memory left by event. In the event, we get lost inside the kindness of mind's occasional remembrance of this moment, this, not the other who keeps scratching. Implying a trip to Wyoming is not the same. Has anyone ever been to Wyoming? Don't answer this time. A stretch of Wyoming that I found repeated, bald, opinionated rocks, 
a multicultural train set, chipped red, blue, and yellow, squandering the town of Rollins across the night. Polysemus Star Factory, the mine's light rail shedding no regrets as it trucks steady through the panoramic voids studded with granite cathedrals where the parishioners pass in Peterbilt's and we dream of antelope leaping but never over fences and snow drifting towards us from the other side of the story. Jauntily, Wyoming spreads its future across the black veins in the Cretaceous outcrops. The hemisphere holds its breath, glances down at its shoes while Cheney's teeth prepare to rip the skin off Wyoming and sutures await us. Have we had too much to sleep? Somewhere uranium gives you that come-hither look and you whisper, God. Jaundice July, makeup artist of the meadow, behold, below this amber crust, veins throbbing with hot history unwritten. Beneath each rock a vein, each vein a pipe, that drive over here, permanent, fatal, a hollow we can't pack, a stolen era stripped, Wyoming, please say something. Batter my heart, three-personed sky. Wind objectifies me. Blue cuts my eye. Curved space visible theory on Interstate 80. For there is no home to go back to. There was only always this risible sky, fond of no expression in poetry, only the brush, sometimes on Hurley's canvases. Am I permitted often to return to the sky framed like a meadow in the lens? Aperture grasps and hurls the blue meadow onto the back of the mind, emulsified into a place to stand inside of and outside of. Are there ages when we are between ages, stammering toward but arrival never arrives when all is the hiss of highway and a soundtrack that empties the narrative? Where there was driving, there seemed too much Wyoming, a pace with eternity, this an assault on boundaries all, unchanged too, no jar placed on a hill, no object to quicken or distill, just the fact of wind and clouds ever arriving. That was Roxy Power reading Implying a Trip to Wyoming from her book, The Songs That Objects Would Sing. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. The Hive Poetry Collective has a pretty strong online presence. We have a website, hivepoetry.org, where you can listen to all our podcasts and you can look at all our events, past and future. And we also are on Facebook at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, and we're on X, previously known as Twitter, Hive Poetry Collective, and we are on Instagram, the Hive Poetry Collective. So please check out what we got going on, and you can also contact us if you have some ideas about possible readers on our shows. So, Roxy, I want to ask you a few questions, not about this poem, although I love this poem and um, have some things I want to talk about it too but I wanted to ask you about how this book came to be um you've got a few themes weaving throughout it you've got time you've got fires you've got big open spaces you've got objects and their vibrational essence you've got longing <laughs> you've got a lot of longing in this poem in these poems I feel like longing for the lost mother the lost sister um you know, just seeking for that essence and that presence. You hear that a lot. I mean, I think the wide open spaces appeal to the speaker in these poems just because 
there's so much presence in that emptiness. Um, but so I don't know if you want to talk about the themes in the book and how you ordered it and how you wove them together or just the process of putting it together. Was it a long mm. process? And just yeah. anything about the arc <laughs> of the book as a whole. Is there anything you want to say about that? Well, thanks, Dion, for that question. Um, it's I guess it's been a strange long lifetime of putting this book together and how long it took me to get a book out um, in the context of writing a lot of poems, you know, in my college years, in my 20s. Some of them appear in this book. Most of these are new. Um but then getting really kind of lost in teaching and motherhood and labor activism and doing things for other people and these big anthology projects, the transgenre anthologies, Viz, InterArts, that um, have 150 people in them each. And just those are really long-term projects. I could have had several PhDs. And so I just ask so you here, the Viz, back, yeah. the Viz InterArts uh, magazine, that, that's something people can anthology, get to. Anthology, yeah. Anthology, that's something people can get to. Get too, right? Yeah, on small press in small press distribution, Viz, V I Z period, Enter Arts. The first one was called Event. The second one is Interventions. And in a way, Event is a concept that I'm working with in um, this book and in that book. I tried to, to make a book into an event. I'm mm. very interested with in um, the Situationists. I don't know if you've heard of them from 1968. They were these students basically in Paris that when they're, you know, all these revolutions were happening around the world. They shut down the, the city of Paris um, with a bunch of union activists um, with by stenciling poetry all over. And, and um, So they and turned the city into a big performance arts space? They did, and they said really that, 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 that the subject of our lives should be everyday life. Get back to everyday life and value it. So, you mm -hmm. know, the French brought us the weekend. But I was trying to figure out this concept of the, the event, which Henri Lefebvre, the situationist, came up with, which he said the, ev the event is something that upsets calculations. It totally changes the situation. You can't predict it. And I'm really always interested in that process of writing as something that I don't even know about until I get there. Right? Until you get to the event horizon. Right. And so the, I wanted this book in a way to be an event, um, starting with some of, it, it's almost like a backwards moving trajectory from Thanatos to Eros. You know how Freud talked about Eros and Thanatos, the connection between love, longing, as you said, mm -hmm. sex, desire, and death. Mm -hmm. So the, the final poem of the book is really about it's trying to be kind of a humorous um, commentary on the a lot of the death that appears in the beginning of the book. The songs that objects would sing is an, uh, a longing to connect to the lost primary object, which, you know, um, Lacan, the other uh, psychoanalyst, I like his theories, who said that basically language comes out of a longing to reconnect to the lost mother. That as soon as we speak, we have divided an I from the mom, from the mom's body. And then we are constantly saying, I am that which I am not, which is you're using language basically to try to reconnect in this way to your mother, mm. which was pre-verbal. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in, in, in using language to reconnect, obviously, to my mom in this book, but to landscapes that are from childhood that are being eroded by climate change. So that's a lot of the first part, which is the mute acceptance of objects to receive our fragment song. And then the second part, unpaint a landscape, really has to do with um, the, the, the connection again between, um, 
you know, fire and the changing of the landscape, but also weaving in that whole painterly way of looking at landscapes and holding them still as objects that that have to do with your memory. And part three is if we are our own ruins. So then in kind of trying to look at ruins or the past as um, something that can can be can be made beautiful again just by the way you look at it and then part four is you are a found object um i kind of i think returns to more specific objects that you're looking at your new identity through so how did the book come about through a lot probably like you through a lot of curation um thinking about um it's almost like walking through an art gallery what do you want the the reader to see first and then second and how do they connect together how do the paintings kind of chime off of each other in a room Mm -hmm. so I spent a lot of time in my anthologies and in my book creating spaces that resemble I think gallery rooms Hmm. almost like the event of you walking through them and I don't I don't want to control what the reader sees or experiences but I want to lay them out very intentionally that's an interesting way to um talk about putting a book together I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about it quite that way, but because you are so intergenre, mm-hmm. you're in, more inclined to perhaps think of the book like a gallery or an event. That, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Why don't we read um, one other poem and then probably just a little conversation and then we'll be done. Will okay. we read a last poem? Um, okay, sure. Well, maybe the last poem of the book book which is desire blows the dust off the world okay um which will take up some of the themes i just mentioned maybe um desire blows the dust off the world until the bomb starts ticking and i notice how hot my socks are on this day without fog i came to crave or not so much crave as create but not in the right places like the sky low where it belongs hovering over the beach town rather than high in my head, in that place where I channel voices, too often mine, that create a fog of wishing for something other than what is. But what is really, and is it covered up by dust? Underneath it all, they say, is desire and its opposite. Tennessee Williams, well, Blanche, really, said death is the opposite of desire. Bummer. Others say emptiness. And you need to have desire to be emptied of it. And boy, do I. This is not something that I really want to talk about with all of you, whoever you are. But I am falling forward now like a tumbleweed, part of some momentum. And now I'm covered with it. But I blew the dust off within a day. And here I am, willing to be a honeycomb, a reed, a stalk of beach grass, anything with enough wind to blow through, to break out into accidental song. Hmm. That was dust blows the dust. Desire blows the dust off the world. That was Roxy Power reading her poem from the the song that objects would sing. The songs. Uh-huh. The songs that yeah. objects would sing. Yeah. Available from Finishing Line Press. Mm-hmm. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Um. Wow. Once again, I see this reaching for some deep inner essence thing. But what is really, and is it covered up by dust? That is a theme that I I see a lot in your poetry. 
reaching. Yeah, you keep trying to get me back to talking about longing. That's a hard one. I feel really kind of vulnerable think, every time you, you bring it me? up. Do you think it's me? Do you think that's just me? Do <laughs> no, you think- I don't know. <laughs> no, it's good. I think it is good. I think that um, in some ways we use um, desire as a way to, uh, you know, distract ourselves from, from death. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's what Freud said anyway, is that those two are opposite, right? Desire and it's opposite. So a streetcar named Desire, when Blanche Dubois, you know, made that comment that, that, um, desire is the opposite of death. Um, it really stuck with me. Actually, that's a, that's a film that I performed to the Neo Benchy, which is live film narration. And I turn it into the script that I want it to be, the, the the ideas that I want it to be by turning down the volume of a film and then okay, re-narrating tell over it. Well, the Benshi was the film teller during the silent film era in Japan, B-E-N-S-H-I. And they would stand to the side of the screen and narrate or ventriloquize the action of the silent films before there were talkies. There were tens of thousands of Benshis in Japan and Korea. And it was just a testament to Japan's love of theater and film. It never caught on in the United States because we liked films, not theater so much, and producers wanted control. So this happened among a bunch of experimental poets in San Francisco in 2003. Um, a filmmaker saw a real Benchy and said, hey, you guys want to try this out? Give me a 10-minute clip and re-narrate it. So that caught on, kind of became a movement among poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, so I've, public, I've performed it for the last uh, 20 years. So and there's a silent film playing and you're making up the dialogue. Or you're making not a silent, yeah. I, yeah. I turned, like, A Streetcar Named Desire oh, has anything, it. So, yeah, anything. so you just turn the volume down and you okay. make it up. So you then make you make, silent. and I make the, yeah, so point is, we don't have to get into that so much, but this poem, kind of references my obsession with that film, um, Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, and I ended the book with this notion of desire and its opposite, because I start the book with a, a long meditation on death. It's really kind of... And then I end with desire, and that's the opposite trajectory. Usually you start out with the desire, you're young, and then you end with death, and then you die. And I was kind of like wanting to move into the future with this propulsion, this pump jack mm-hmm. pu- of non-oiled or whatever, of desire pumping like me forward. En- I like ending with desire, but really that line, death is the opposite of desire, like you can just sit and think about that for a long time. It's funny her name is white. It's like blank. Oh, Blanche. Yeah, Blanche. Oh, she was so white. She was the uh, she was the epitome of white Southern female. um, Yeah, just like all that has been written about plantation politics and the white privileged woman at the center, in a way of of Mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah, Mm -hmm. with with taking on uh, the labor of death is the opposite of desire. Mm -hmm, That mm that just I like the way you go bummer after that. (laughs) Others say emptiness. And you need to have desire to be emptied of it. And boy, do I. Yeah, so it's just really playing around with those almost like two main dimensions of existence, which is pure being and then form and thought and wanting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, de- if does if death is the opposite of desire, and others say emptiness is the opposite of desire. So you know, again, that Buddhist idea of emptying yourself of desire because that is at the root of suffering. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people that that talk about 
that in a in a way that is compelling like Pema Chodron like she she'll say things like we're all neurotic and that's what you have to work with is your neuroses and your desires so don't try to get rid of them you don't want to try to get rid of your negativity you don't want to be positive and get rid you have to work with it you have to work with that form whatever you have you have to work with it that's what, what if you, you feel have. positive about being negative <laughs> well then you're living in paradox as john keats would say you've got a lot of negative capability and yet see being having a lot of negative capability is really being positive so i love these lines but i blew the dust off within a day just thinking of you mm-hmm. and so that's kind of desire right there thinking of you mm-hmm but here I am, and then there's pure being, but here I am, willing to be a honeycomb, a reed, a stalk of beach grass, anything with enough wind to blow through, to break out into accidental song. I feel like that's a real lyric moment where there's some real acceptance of pure being right there. Yes, and the Ars Poetica maybe of being in windy landscapes such as Wyoming is, where if you allow yourself to be a reed, that the landscape will blow through you and you will turn it into something else. It's like the end of, I I think, that poem we were talking about before, implying a trip to Wyoming. I said something like, no jar to place upon a hill. That was referencing that Wallace Stevens poem about anecdote of a jar that you change something that is unformed like wilderness into something made, like a jar is a man-made thing, right? Which is taking sand blow, turn with the heat, turning it into glass, making it something clear, and then making the wilderness rise up to it. And as compelling as that is, I don't really feel that way. I feel like I'm just there as a possible instrument of its bidding. And maybe a new song will come out of it not trying to turn it into something better just letting the music pretty accidental exactly roxy it has been so wonderful having you here today i'm talking about your lovely book the songs that objects would sing by roxy power um you can order it now anywhere you get your books this has been the hive poetry collective i'm dion o'reilly this is kskd santa cruz 90.7 fm and ksqt prunedale thank you for tuning in you can hear poetry every Sunday night on KSQD at 8 o'clock. And you can find all our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you, Roxy, for being here. I really always love talking with you about anything, Dion, but thank you so much for giving me your time to talk about this book. I really appreciate it. You're you're a dear. Okay. (laughs)